We're in our book by book, chapter by chapter study of the whole Bible. And now we're in Genesis chapter 12. We're going to begin with a word of prayer and then we're going to pick back up with Jephthah. I'll give a little background into who he was and what his background is if you missed out last week. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your grace and for your mercy and for helping us as we study the lives of people who have lived so long ago, Lord, but dealt with some very similar things that we deal with every day. And we pray that we would grow closer to you and be able to overcome the trials and even the joys of our own life, Lord, as we study your word and we grow closer to you every week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Jephthah. Jephthah was the son of a mistress. He wasn't, he didn't have a, a mom and a dad. He had a dad, but the dad went and snuck off, got with another gal. So he's an illegitimate child. That's the nicer way of saying uh, the way that the scripture puts it, especially in the King James Version. It's very harsh. But as an illegitimate child, when his father passes away, he's kicked out of the family and he's sent to the hills where he has to fend for himself. And we use the analogy, he kind of joined the biker gang. He went with these tough guys, the cast off, the foolish ones, the least of these. And he gathers them together and they become these tough, strong guys. Well, what happens is the nation of Israel has these uh, antagonists, the Ammonites that come up from the south that are going to make war. And they don't have anybody tough that's going to lead them. So they go and they find Jephthah. What was crazy, though, is that as we were studying last week, Jephthah goes from being this outlaw in the hills to being an international diplomat and the leader of the nation of Israel. And then we see him as a commander leading in battle and having victory over the Ammonites. Uh, we saw that Jephthah is a tough guy. He's a direct guy, but he's also very, very intelligent. The Lord uses him to deliver Israel. And you would think, oh, great. Nice story. We'll end right there. Well, unfortunately, he had made an oath to God that he would sacrifice or offer whatever came out of the door of his house. You guys remember this from last week? And it was his daughter, his only daughter, his only child. We don't know scripturally if she was offered as a burnt offering or it was just dedicated to the temple. We don't know. But when this guy gives his word, he means it. And so with that background, we're going to pick back up with him in verses 1 through 3 of the chapter of chapter 12. I'm going to try speaking English today. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Then the men of Ephraim gathered together, crossed over towards Zaphon, and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, My people and I were in a great struggle with the people of Ammon. And when I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. So when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon. And the Lord delivered them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? So Ephraim, this is kind of a common thing with these guys because with Gideon back in chapter 8, of the book of Judges, when Gideon had that great victory, it was the same tribe, the tribe, the Ephraimites, who came to him and said, hey, why didn't you invite us in? The battle's over now, and you didn't say anything. Well, Gideon's a very nice, and he's a very meek person, 
he's very gracious. And so he, he uses his wit and his conversation to say, you know, hey, this is the way it's going to be. You guys should have been here and you weren't. Go ahead and go back. Is Jephthah a meek, nice guy? Was Jephthah hiding in a valley when God called him? Was he hiding in a threshing floor at the bottom of a valley? No, Jephthah's been fighting in the hills his whole life. And so he has a completely different reaction. How do you think a guy like Jephthah is going to take being told, we will burn your house down with fire? Because that's what they said in verse 1. This is not going to go well. Okay, this guy was willing to sacrifice his only daughter to keep his word, has been fighting in the mountains his own life, his whole life, just came out of hand-to-hand combat over multiple cities. Remember that huge campaign they had, defeating the Ammonites, and these guys come against him and say, yeah, you should have let us have some of the glory. You should have let us be in the battle. But Jephthah, he tells them, you should have been there. You could have been there, and I asked you, and you didn't show up. What do you want to do about it? You want to fight? And that's pretty much how this goes down. Well, as I'm studying this, I'm kind of thinking about uh, ministry and I'm thinking about service. Um, You could even think about your workplace or even in your family. But especially with ministry, it seems like we get a lot of complaints and compliments. Get a lot of talk. Complaints and compliments. People pass those around like it's going out of style. What you don't get, though, is people pitching in to help people going into the battle, people doing the work, people willing to be criticized. No, it's very, very easy to come alongside and say like, well, if, you, if I were going to plant a church, I would do it like this. Oh, that's great. I didn't see you there when we did it. Oh, you know, the, the wall colors, they're so, they're so basic. You know, you, you should have this color. Okay, get a paintbrush. Let's see. Let's see. And then you can go on it over and over and over again. At the end of the day, Jephthah, where he's been, where he's come from, what he's accomplished, all by the grace of God. God has raised him up and used him to deliver Israel. And then now these Ephraimites dare come to him and say, well, you know, we should have been there too. If we had been there, the victory would have been even greater. Jephthah's not going to take kindly to this. For us, the Bible says that we're to do all things without murmuring and complaining to the New Testament, to the believer, to you and I. Do all things without murmuring and complaining. There's some young people in here, some teenagers. I'm going to tell you right now. You want to be mature? Do all things without murmuring and complaining. Oh, you older people, you're smirking and smiling. I'm going to remind you of this. I'm going to remind you of this. Now some of you are insulted that I called you old. I just, what do you want from me? You're complaining already. Do all things without murmuring and complaining. Jephthah got the work done. But Jephthah is just a man. As incredible as his journey and his story is, it would make a fantastic movie, a great series. He is just a man, and he does really dumb things. Same as Gideon. You know, Gideon was very meek. He was very passive. He needed to be encouraged over and over again by the Lord. You don't see Jephthah being encouraged one time. He doesn't question anything. He just goes and he gets it. Well, we're going to see that reaction here with these Ephraimites in verses 4 through 7. It says here, Now Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, You Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites. 
and among the Manassites. The Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. And when any Ephraimite who escaped said, Let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, Are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, then they would say to him, Then say Shibboleth. And he would say Siboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan. There fell at the times 42,000 Ephraimites. 42,000 because Jephthah was insulted. Like this guy, he does not play. He is a dictator. He is a tough as nails savage. And yet that's who God used. Remember in the times of the judges, this, this time is not about times of obedience and humility and following after the Lord's. God is just supernaturally using these guys to deliver the nation of Israel from these other countries that are taking them over, oppressing them, because he's loyal. Now, Pastor Chuck, he points out in his sermon, in his commentaries, how many times Jephthah says, I, I, I. If you looked at it earlier in the, in the text, all the way back in verse 2, Jephthah said to them, My people and I were in a great struggle when I called you. Verse 3, when I saw that you did not deliver me. Verse 3, I took my life in my hands. I, 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 I. You get a gist of who this guy is and what he's like. Now, it's easy for us to be looking at him and be, Ooh, gosh, that's toxic. I don't want to be like that. The issue is that, you guessed it, we all are like this at certain points to a certain degree. And now some people are more passive. Maybe you're more like Gideon. You don't like any confrontation at all. But then the other half of us on a different spectrum, and then some of us even farther along are more like this. Oh, I'll fix this. What did you say to me? I'll handle this right now. Rolling up your sleeves, getting out of the situation. You got a problem with me? We'll fix this problem right now. Let's go. Well, unfortunately, to its extreme, the Ephraimites, this is a civil war. This is within the family. And how many of us are destroying our own families, our own lives, our own relationships because of our own pride? And then on Sunday mornings, we've been looking how the Lord, He hates the prideful heart. He, he can't stand it. Now, how brutal is Jephthah? He attacks the Ephraimites before they can even show up to battle. And when he does it, and they challenge them. They catch them unawares. You saw it. He figured out that because of their dialect, their accent, they couldn't say the shh sound. So they would make them say this word, and it would come out as a s sound without the H. Like, oh, no, you're an Ephraimite. What if the poor guy just had a lisp? <laughs> like, he's done. It's over. 45,000 of them. And we're not talking about pressing a button and missiles flying thousands of miles away. They are hand-to-hand, -hand cutting these guys up, throwing them in the river. I mean, the savagery here is insane. And it is sad. But spiritually, we can do the same. We can cut each other with our lips, with our actions, with our emotions, just because we want to be the tough guy or the tough gal, just because we don't want to be proven wrong. Just because we're not yield, willing to yield, we're not willing to bend, and then we figure out conniving ways to make it hurt even more while still maintaining our Christian sense, wiggling around using church language to cut people up. 
Yes, because I'm speaking about believers. I'm speaking about us. And really, I'm speaking about myself. You, know, you guys know I like to preach to myself. We have to be very, very careful. When we look at the book of the Judges, when the Lord fills someone with the Holy Spirit and uses them, it is incredible what is able to be accomplished. But if we ever take a sense that it was us who did it or that the Lord needed us or needed our intellect or our work or our effort or our uh, initiative or entrepreneurial spirit, then you're in a very, very dangerous place. He does not need you. He will replace you in an instant. And you'd probably be better off. I know some of you. But we thank God for his grace and his mercy. This is so sad, this situation. I mean, if you think about Jephthah and what he's come from, how amazing would it have been if he had been more like David, for example, a man after God's own heart, even though he'd made mistakes, but constantly looking back to the Lord. You think of David's psalm that he wrote, that song, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Cast me not away. Just that heart to seek up. Jephthah doesn't talk about the Lord one time because it's all about him. And it's easy for him to do what you or I may do. Play the victim. Well, it's my family. Look what they did to me. Oh, it's my, it's my culture. Look what they did to me. They put me in the mountains. I had to fend for myself. Oh, look at this situation. They all cast their backs on me, and then they came crawling back to me. So what? So what? Are you using it as an opportunity for God's glory or for your own glory? Are you using it for the benefit of others or for yourself? You see what the ramifications are. Death, destruction, hurt, and pain. I, for one, I don't want any of those ramifications. Well, just like that, that's how Jephthah walks off the scene. That's it. I'm very interested to see how did he die? What, what happened? Did he just roll off into the sunset here? Did somebody assassinate him? Did he end up getting any more kids? Like what happened? We'll have to ask him because we have no idea. Because in verses 8 through 10, we go in a completely different direction. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and he gave away 30 daughters in marriage and brought in 30 daughters from elsewhere for his sons. He judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. That's it. Like his whole life is subbed up in a tweet. You could probably fit this on his headstone. I mean, 30 kids, you got a life. Uh, you got stories to tell, but it's not for us. Now, I do have some Bible scholastic stuff to go over here. This is not the Bethlehem where Jesus was born. This isn't Bethlehem Ephrata. This isn't Bethlehem, uh, excuse me, I'm Bethlehem Judah. This is not Bethlehem Judah. This is Bethlehem in the town of western Zebulon. It's 10 miles north of Megiddo. How do I know this? Because the Bible commentary told me so. <laughs> I have no idea. But I found that fascinating because we have to remind ourselves that just like around here, there's a lot of places with the same name. I grew up in Lompoc, California. Down the street is Santa Barbara. Do you know how many Santa Barbaras there are on the planet? There's like five in every South American country. And so it's important for us to kind of know, don't just assume something when you read it at face value. 
Now, I want to make some observations. They're cultural observations. I'm not insinuating anything. I'm not saying anything's good, anything's bad. But at this time period, and in the world, all the way up to, say, the 1800s, probably even the early 1900s, the more kids you had, the richer you were because you put them to work. We were in an agrarian society, and those kids provided for. They are not sapping your resources. You're not running across town to all the AYSO games to your 12 kids, trying to keep everything. They went to work from sunup to sundown, six days a week. That's what they did. The more of them you had, the better you are, were off. Now, when it came to marriages, this is very important. It says in verse 9 that he had 30 sons, and he gave away 30 daughters in marriage. What does that mean? He's got 60 kids. I know what you're thinking. No, this is not the same woman. He's got, he's got more ladies going on there. It's not physically possible. I mean, the Lord can do anything. But that was the culture then. Because if you had more wives, you had to provide for those wives. That meant you were very rich. This guy is wealthy beyond means, beyond the means of the average person. So he's got wives and concubines. He's got 60 sons and 60 daughters. Now, remember, I repeat this all the time, especially in the Old Testament and books like Judges. There's a difference between description and proscription. God's not saying this is the way you should do it. In fact, this is a problem. But he is describing what happened. It's historical. This is what the man did. This is what many people in that culture did. I'm going to come back to that in a second. But this guy had 30 sons that he married off. Those are alliances that he can make with other families and other royalty. That is also dowries that are being paid in and out. Those are resources being changed out. Because remember, in this culture, there's no marriages for love. You are chosen, you're arranged marriages. Same thing with his daughters that he married them off to. He's paying dowries, he's picking and making the decisions of who they're marrying, and it's for the betterment of both families, whoever they may be. But that's all we get to know about this guy. I find it fascinating that in the 21st century, it is the exact opposite. The more kids you have, the more of a burden it is on you, financially. And how in our culture, this is a, a cultural observation. Remember, I'm not trying to um, say one is right, one is wrong. This is the way it should be done. But in today's culture, the kids are tended after, and everyone provides for the kids. The school system, the grocery store, Disneyland, the coaching, the sports, it's all around serving these little munchkins. And our whole lives, my generation, a couple generations before that, our whole lives were raised being taken care of. But for generations past, that was not the case. You got an assignment, you got a job, you did that job or else. Now, this is some interesting observations, isn't it? Because you're already starting to, well, what's better? Which one's right? Which way should we go? I want to talk about that in a little bit because I want us to read verses 11 and 12 too. It says, after him, so Ibzan, he's dead. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel. He judged Israel 10 years. And Elon, not the Musk, and Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ajalon in the country of Zebulon. So this guy, he comes and goes. But there's even less information about him. But... 
we see that he's from a different tribe. So at least the Lord, it seems, he's picking from different tribes. He's raising up people differently. Notice the time frames, too, are a little different. Some are shorter, some are longer. This also points out to us that the Bible is not an exhaustive history. It's not trying to teach us everything. That's why it is so important as we're reading the Bible to know everything that's in there is in there for a purpose. Everything that's in there is for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction. So don't think that anything in there is just like, oh, well, this was important at this time or that time is not important now. No, look at the stuff that's not important. It doesn't tell us. We need to really grasp what it has for us. But this is the point I wanted to make. It's in verses 13 and 15. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirithonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 young donkeys. He judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Perithonite, died and was buried in Parathon in the land of Ephraim in the mountains of the Amalekites. Now, if you have sons, you kind of consider them donkeys anyway. I mean, they're messy, they're stinky, they just pull things, they don't have very many, they spit sometimes, you know, they're crazy, bite you. You must have sons because you guys get it. But my observation is this. You know, the, the whole thing has changed in culture because these 40 sons and 30 grandsons, the Bible makes a point. It goes out of its way to say they rode on 70 young donkeys. If you have animals today for you, you are kidding yourself. They cost you money. They don't make you money. I don't want, unless you're a cattle farm and that's all you do is ranching, even then you're barely existing because it is hard. If you have a horse, those things suck up so much cash, it's crazy. If you have a donkey, same thing. I know because I grew up on a ranch every summer that was shipped off to my grandparents' uh, ranch to, to work. I remember one time we had a miniature horse. My grandfather hated that thing. It would bite everybody. It was terrible. I showed up one summer, the thing was gone. What happened? I don't know. That being said, at this time, this was like having a Ferrari having a donkey. Jesus enters in on the foal, the colt. Like this is royalty. This is the Ferrari, but your Ferrari also makes you money. It's an asset. So he's saying here, this guy is incredibly rich. Not only is he blessed with great family, he has great stock. Like to us, this is like saying he has a huge portfolio, multiple businesses, and his sons are running all these businesses. Wow, that's incredible. But notice how the culture has changed, where children become a burden. But I will also say this. Three or four generations passed, not even that far. My grandparents, my great-grandparents, you, you're not told that you are loved as a child. In fact, in the English, the England, they have a, a saying. It says that they pat their children and kiss their horses because it's very stoic. That was, it was only a few generations ago where it was children were to be seen and not heard. And that, it's a completely different generational shift to today. Again, I'm making observations. I'm not saying one is right or wrong because you can see strengths and weaknesses in both. I want to have a biblical perspective on how to raise my kids. I want to have a perspective on raising, on raising my kids 
the best that I can because they're like little donkeys. They do whatever they want, whenever they want to. They have their own personalities. But I want to raise my kids looking at a multi-generational perspective. What are truths for raising kids that have lasted for millennia, not days, years, weeks, not even decades? For millennia, how have people gone from being small people to big people? What are the good things and what are the bad things from any one of those generations? I love my children. I tell them I love them. I encourage them. I show them emotions that you people have never seen before. <laughs> that being said, I'm tough on my kids. I'm hard on them. I push them. I don't know what the line is. I don't know which one is too much or too little. I'm just guessing like everybody else. But I, I like to be able to see in Scripture and be like, wow, things were completely different at a different time. I'm definitely not looking to the book of Judges for examples on fatherhood. I mean, our boy just sacrificed his daughter a little while ago. You guys remember that? It's the other way around for me. But I think that we need to be able to make these observations. We need to be able to learn. And I think it's also another observation. What we think makes you rich now, we may laugh at in the future. Isn't that interesting? We laugh at the fact that they're running around with donkeys and they got a bunch of kids. Like, that just seems the silliest thing. In fact, I'm sure some moms were in here like, you give me five kids, you're out of your mind. You're talking about 30, 20? This is crazy. But what perspective are we using to judge ourselves today? How are you judging your family today or your life or your relationships? With what standard are you using to say that you're rich or that you're poor? What standard are you using to say even what happiness is or joy or contentment or health? or wealth? How much money do you have to make? How healthy do you have to be? On the health, I'll just expound on that a little bit more. I am in relatively good shape. I will never be in the NBA or the NFL because I've been born handicapped. Handicapped, you say? I'm not seven foot tall and I can't run a 4240. I will never be able to do those things and lift 500 pounds over my head. I'm handicapped. I will never be able to do those things. But I don't go around depressed about it. Why? Because none of us here expect that, right? None of us here, including myself, would say, yeah, that's even in the realm of possibility. But some people here are depressed because you feel like you're not meeting physical standards that you're putting on yourself. Maybe that's not the standard God has for you. Yes, some of you are, are uh, needing to have some more victory in your life in different areas. I'm not saying we should just give up. But what I'm saying here, whether it's your kids, your fortune, your attitude, your opinions, whether it's your health, in all these areas, what standard are you using to measure against? I pray it's a biblical standard because the Bible has lasted the test of time the hammers of every critic have worn themselves out on the anvil of Scripture, and here it stands today. I bet you Ibzan and Elon and Jephthah never in a million years would guess that millennia since they died, people on a continent they never heard of, by the grace of God, would be learning from their lives. And yet here it is. Incredible.
Well, next week we're going to pick up in chapter 13, our march through the book of Judges. going to be uh, focusing mostly on one person, Manoah. Very interesting. We're going to close out this evening in prayer. On Wednesday nights, we like to spend the rest of the evening praying one at a time, loud that we can all hear, praying for each other, intercessing for one another, praying for our missionaries, for those that are in authority, as the Lord calls us to do, and just waiting on the Spirit to be moving with each and every one of us. Lord, we pray that you would guide and direct us this evening as we pray and seek your face. We hear from you and pray for one another. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.